This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and joining me today is Will Bushman. Here we are, back again. We are continuing in our 10-part series on the state of things in America, and we're asking the question, how did we get here? We're looking at a, at a world that so many of us, particularly the older generations, barely recognize, and the younger generations are looking at with despair. It's like, this is, this is what, what I have to look forward to in my life. I don't think there's anybody who looks at the state of things in the country and says, yeah, we're doing great. This is good. I like it. I like where we're going here. So what we're looking at today, in the last episode, we talked about how the, the roots of American education and how it was so steeped in the scriptures. There was a, a surge of literacy that ran through the Protestant and later the Catholic world that, that launched the Enlightenment. And by the time we saw the universities and the education codes and everything through early America, we saw that Christianity, without question was the cornerstone of America's foundations. When you get to the time of the American Revolution, the the country had just come through what was known as the Great Awakening. And so from 1730 to 1770, you see this, this explosion of a spiritual rededication to the Lord. And, and it was it was massive. And so you saw guys like Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant, and they're going all over the colonies, setting the nation ablaze with love for the Lord. Even Ben Franklin in, in his autobiography writes about what he saw as somebody who never gave his life to Jesus in the way that Whitfield wanted him to. But he wrote this. He said, it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in the different families of every street. Mm. And it was this zeal for Christianity that led to the American Revolution. John Adams says that it was this radical change in principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people that was the real American Revolution. And so by the time you get to the point where where Americans are ready to fight for their independence, you have things, you know, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress declaring things like resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. And they called on their people to, quote, continue steadfast and with a proper sense of your dependence on God to nobly defend those rights which heaven gave and no man ought to take from us. And Britain knew this. Sir Richard Sutton read a letter from a crown-appointed governor in New England before Parliament at the time. And he's telling the British, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none, nor any governor, but Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
Can you imagine that? Like, and they're going around and during the American Revolution with the rallying cry, no king, but King Jesus. And it is so steeped in this idea of the Christian zeal for liberty that, that Britain's King George III and the British Parliament claimed that the American Revolution was little more than a, a Presbyterian rebellion. When we win the American Revolutionary War and we sign the treaty with Britain, the beginning of that treaty starts with these words, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Hmm. And so our founders were very, very clearly doing this with it, with a sense that our foundations have to be laid in the understanding that our rights and our responsibilities come from God. That is the impetus behind the American Revolution, that was the rallying cry. And so when you get to the point where we win the war and we have to start forming a nation and looking to, to the brilliance of the scriptures and, and philosophers to give us the very best form of government to move forward, that's what we're going to look at today. Where did this wisdom come from? And if, we're, if this whole series is going to be talking about how our nation has walked away from the founding principles, then it's important for us to understand what were those founding principles. In today's episode, what we're going to be looking at is, okay, these men were steeped in education, but then they're tasked with developing a form of government, having learned from every other society that had ever gone before them and trying to formulate a society that makes the most sense that reflects the truths of scripture and that is going to give subsequent generations the greatest hope for liberty and prosperity. And that is what we're going to talk about today. If you remember in our last episode, we talked about how these two new schools of thought came out of Catholicism in the 1500s. In 1513, you had Niccolo Machiavelli that the Catholics, you know, they nicknamed Satan Old Nick after Machiavelli. And what Machiavelli taught was, you know, there's really no place for morality in charting your course forward. He believed that the ends justified the means. If you have a goal, do whatever you have to do to attain it because this world is all there is. And so there is no hope beyond this world. There is no God. There is no heaven. And so this world and what you can achieve in it is the sum total of life. And so go grab it. It was a tremendously godless model um, for political philosophy. And he's to this day known as the father of modern political philosophy, which is, is wild. Now, on the other side of that, you had Martin Luther in 1517 who nails his 95 theses on the, the Wittenberg door the Protestant revolution that comes out of that says that you have a right to read the scriptures for yourself. Sola Scriptura comes out of the Protestant Reformation. And it's this idea that we're in the, in the Catholic view, everything is mediated to you from a superior source. You have, you have a pope or you have a bishop or you have a priest who mediates God to you, but you don't have direct access to it yourself to the degree that the Protestants were demanding. The Protestants would say, no, 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 you should have the scriptures, which for Catholics was in Latin, most people couldn't read it. They wanted the scriptures translated into everybody's native tongue so that everybody could have an individual experience with the word of God. Well, this move toward individualism gave birth 
to a, a radical change in society, this call for liberty, that there was dignity to the individual, capitalism and property rights and free speech, and every individual is entitled to some modicum of freedom where before that had been kind of stifled under this collectivist view. Uh, and there's good and bad parts to a collectivist view, but this gave birth to the call for individual rights that ultimately leads through a, a chain of philosophers and gets you to the American Revolution, where individual rights are going to be extremely important, as will the surge of individual relationships with God, which becomes the cornerstone of who America will become as a nation. Thucydides, who is one of the great historians of the ancient world, he was a Greek who, who wrote on the Peloponnesian War, he says this, history is philosophy teaching by examples. Hmm. When you when you look at all of history throughout all of time, every event that happens, every war, every revolution that you see is coming as the consequence of somebody's ideas without fail. Hitler's ideas come from somewhere, course, right? Yeah. He's receiving them from some philosopher or scientist that's implanted into his head, and now he's going out to carry out those ideas. And so what I want to show you with the using the American Revolution and the French Revolution especially, I want to show how those ideas bring about one revolution versus the other and then to trace those ideas because they will have large consequences later. But I also want us to see when America was born, what were the primary ideals and ideals that we held to? And you trace that right to... The, the philosophers of the Enlightenment in large part. Okay, so again today, two trains, two different tracks come from two different origins, but at the same exact time, we see two very different things play out. That's right. So I'm gonna make the, I would make the argument that the American Revolution is coming out of Luther okay. largely, and the, the French Revolution is going to come from the train tracks that's pushing ideas very hostile, very hostile to religion, as we'll see. And so we're going to start with the American founding, but we're not going to talk about the founders at first. We're going to talk about these philosophers that came before them that the founders themselves were constantly okay. pointing to saying, we get this idea from this guy and this idea from this guy and, and hang with us and pretend like you're part of this conversation. Because when you see all of those ideas come together, you're like, man, the American experiment was this amazing, grand experiment that no, no nation in the world had ever tried before, and it was picking the greatest wisdom and philosophy from various voices uh, of the centuries in front of them. And so when you get to the Constitutional Convention, James Madison, who is, like, if, if you know much about the Constitutional Convention, he's considered the architect of the U.S. Constitution, he is, and he's going to be the fourth president as well. But he is the one who's putting this together. And so he asked Thomas Jefferson, who was you know very familiar with Europe, was an ambassador over there. He sent him a letter saying, send from Paris crates of books on world government, the laws of nation, history, and political theory. Hmm. And so Jefferson does that, and the founders get overwhelmed with all of these writings from various philosophers that we're going we're gonna to talk about in this episode, maybe in the next one as well. And these guys were radically influential upon the thinking of our founders right out of the gates. And so in the, in the 
Enlightenment era, everybody ultimately kind of traces their ideas of political philosophy back to a guy named Thomas Hobbes. So you ever heard that name before? I've heard of him. So he's, he's living in the mid-1600s, and his big idea that he writes is the Leviathan. And so we have a very low opinion of man. Yeah. Hobbes gets it. Like okay. he, is, he is totally on board with the idea that man is terrible. But Hobbes also has a very low opinion of religion. Mm. And so listen to how he describes human existence and see, tell me if you agree with this. Human existence is the war of every man against every man. If there's no external factors holding you, you know, the evils of men at bay, existence is the war of every man against every man. Like it would be total anarchy if you had no governments, no force of religion, there's nothing like that, and it was just human nature, we would be at war, everyone with each other. It would be total chaos. It would be protect what you can and seize what you can, and it would be all about the selfish struggle for existence. And so he goes on and he says, and he, his famous book is called The Leviathan, which is what he's nicknaming government. <laughs> and he says that if you were without government, existence would be, and this is a direct quote, he says just it would be continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of man is, is just solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. You may have heard that before. Like, the life of man without any structure is just solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And what we don't understand is back in that particular era, if you were outside of civilization, this is, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people's lives were brutal without all the technological forces that we have today. And so what Hobbes comes along is he says, yeah, you know, man is really terrible, if we don't have some strong arm government to keep man in line, this is going to be our reality. So we have to enter into an agreement as people to empower this Leviathan, this really, really powerful force that's oh. going to make men so afraid of angering the Leviathan or coming into the Leviathan's wrath that they calm down and they obey and they're civilized. And so he wanted to give absolute control over to the government. Wow. So this is one of the, the major political philosophers that's going to get this conversation started. So how, how do you feel about that? I, that was a real curveball. I thought the government and the Leviathan was going to be a bad thing. Like they didn't want that. But he's saying, no, let's push more into that. That yeah, we it's need like, that. It's a necessary evil. Okay. You know, if, if men, basically like if men were great, we wouldn't need a government, but man is like outrageously wicked. And the only way you can restrain him is through a brute, powerful force of government. And so you need to buy contract, like everybody needs to agree on this, to yield authority to this Leviathan to keep society in check. And because he didn't believe in religion, there was no other option. Yeah, I mean, he knew that religion was was there and that it had some impact, but religion is powerless, you know, for somebody who rejects it. It's not it's yeah. not going to influence their behavior. So you need a strong arm to to do this. Now, of course, after fighting the revolutionary war that's, you know, overthrowing a powerful monarch, the founders were totally allergic to the thought of a powerful central government that's, you know, this leviathan that keeps everybody in control. But they knew they needed something, right? They, they weren't foolish. They weren't morons. They knew that there had to be some kind of government. So 
Madison and Federalist Papers, which the Federalist Papers, if you ever hear that, this these are the papers that were sent out to the colonies selling the Constitution. Like, we should adopt the Constitution, and here's a whole bunch of letters as to why. And so in the 51st one of these things, Madison is, is actually talking about Hobbes, and he says this. He says, what is government? Like, we're okay, we're establishing a government, but what is government? But the greatest of all reflections on human nature. You understand what he's saying there? Like, the fact that you even have government says that human nature is messy and mm-hmm. it needs somebody to be the referee. And so he goes on, he says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. That's 100% true. Like, you're, we don't need parliaments or congresses in heaven. You know, yeah. like governments won't be necessary. They won't be sent there. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary because they're just powerful and they would impose. And so then he, he frames this to the founders. He says, in framing a government, which is administered by men over men, which they're already leery of because they believe that men are tyrannical. So if we're going to bring about a government... The great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the govern, but the harder step is in the next place, you have to oblige it to control itself. And so here's, here's the conundrum of the founders. We need a government, but we have to create a government that's not tyrannical. Yeah. How in the world do we do that? That people accept, right? That people accept, right? The consent of the governed. They, they agree to yield to the Leviathan, but man, we need to wrap this Leviathan up and chain it so forcefully and well that it could never turn tyrannical to injure us beyond what we've given it authority to do. All right, so, so Hobbes sets the scene for why governments are needed. So then the question becomes, like Madison's talking about, how do we restrain this thing? If we're going to have a government, how do, we, how do we keep it from coming back and destroying us? And so of all those crates of books that they got from Paris that, that Jefferson shipped over, there are three names that far and away appear in the writings of our founders more than everyone else. So number one, tell me if you've ever heard the name of this guy, Baron de Montesquieu. Maybe. <laughs> I'm 50-50 on yeah, Montesquieu. Yeah, he's not famous. He's not famous at all, which, is, you know, not to moder- modernity. Like, we've never heard of these guys. Like, we would hear of Jefferson or Washington or Franklin. But number one is Baron de Montesquieu. The next one is John Locke, who is massively influential to he's the famous. He's we way more famous. And then then you have William Blackstone, who's who basically wrote a bunch of stuff for the English government. And if I'm honest, it's like the the founders basically just said, hmm, this guy writes well. <laughs> we're we're going to plagiarize a lot of his stuff. And they just imported it over to our Constitution because he was a great legal mind. And so those are the three that were quoted by far the most, except for the Bible. Huh. So the Bible is by far the number one most cited reference of the founders in their discussions on political philosophy. So there was an article that was published by Oxford University Press in the journal that's um, Academic Insights for the Thinking World. And so I'm going to read this quote to you. The Bible left its mark on their political culture, talking about the founders. 
following an extensive survey of American political literature from 1760 to 1805, political scientist Donald S. Lutz from the University of Houston reported that the Bible was cited more frequently than any European writer or even any European school of thought, such as the Enlightenment, liberalism, or republicanism. The Bible, he reported, accounted for approximately one-third of the citations in the literature he surveyed. The book of Deuteronomy alone is the most frequently cited work, followed by Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws. And so if you were to pull this out, it's 34% of all their citations are looking back at the Bible on how and why we're going to frame the government as we would. And 9% of all citations are the book of Deuteronomy. So coming right out of Moses. Next after that is Montesquieu. So you get the sense, holy moly, like the Bible is producing a tremendous influence on the founding of our country. And most people like modern skeptics and everyone else go, oh, the founders, you know, they weren't Christian. Some of them, some of the, like Jefferson, Franklin, Thomas Paine, you make a really good case that those guys are not Christians. And oftentimes by their own pen, Thomas Paine being the the most obvious of, of the three, but they believed that the Bible was the highest source of wisdom in the world. Even Jefferson and Franklin would tell you that the greatest source of philosophy was the Bible. And so like, what, what do they pull out of the Bible? Let's just run through some of the ideas that they credited to the Bible. Number one, and I think this is probably the most important, the fallen nature of man and the doctrine of total depravity. Like human beings are born selfish They're born to advance themselves, given power, they will abuse it, they will exploit other people. Like that doctrine, which you pull straight out of Scripture, far and away influenced them the most of every other thing that they bring to the table. So, And that's going to be a big deal because when you get to Rousseau, Rousseau says, no, 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 man's man's really actually, he's born good, which blows my mind that anybody could believe that. But anyway... So the fallen nature of man, for sure. In Federalist Papers 37, Madison, again, talks about how the government has to guard against, and he uses this expression, the infirmities and depravities of the human character. So he's using the language of Calvinist doctrine, total depravity. So moving on, number two, the, the dignity of all individuals, right? The Bible says that every person is made in the image of God. So in all of these other cultures that have caste systems or class systems or whatever there might be, Christianity comes and levels that and says, hold on a minute, everybody's made in the image of God. And even so, like, no doubt, if you're listening to this, what's the problem with that with the founders? Slavery. Yeah, slavery. You're, you, don't, you don't treat all people as though they're created in the image of God. And here's the response to that. If you go read the writings of the founders, they knew that they were wrong in holding slaves. Washington calls it the biggest regret of his life. Hmm. You know, they're, they're freeing them upon their death. They're, they're talking about how they would support abolition if it came across with a good plan. Like, they know it's wrong. They know that it's running hostile to the very principles that they're lifting up. And so they're saying, we don't measure up. Like slavery should not happen in America if we followed our own ideals, but we don't. So out out of the gates, all human beings, and you'll see this in the the writings of the founders, you know, they're they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. All men are, are created that way. 
Number three, individual rights. So like the Bible is all about giving you property rights and the ability to control your own family and your own destiny. And it's very much an affirmation of individual rights. The government or the collective can't come and just strip them from you. Four, the right and the duty of civil disobedience. So where do you see that in the Bible? The apostles. The apostles, yeah. yeah. You're not allowed to teach in the name of Jesus. And what do they do? Like we fear God more than man. Yeah, <laughs> We're not going to listen to you. Because there are liberties that we hold that come from God that outweigh what you, government, are telling us to do. And so this spirit, the duty of civil disobedience, that the Bible is filled with warnings of the dangers of tyranny. There's a federal nature of things, right? You go back to to Moses when he's founding everything. Remember Jethro, his father-in-law. He's like, Moses, you're, you can't handle this as one man, so you need to set up representation where you have groups of 1,000 or 100 or 50s or, or 10s. And so even in the Bible, you see kind of this, this nature of dividing up authorities into smaller groups, bigger groups. So in the American government, you would see that as like local, state, federal levels, like different, different levels represent different numbers of people. Article 4 and the Constitution doesn't include Sundays in the legislative process. So like when it, when it gives 10 days for a veto, Sundays are excluded. Wow. There's no double jeopardy. And that points back to Nahum 1.9, where it talks about how God will not put you to two trials. Like he speaks once and that's it. That's a great movie. What's that? Double Jeopardy. It is a good That's movie. where I learned about that law. I thought I was really <laughs> smart after that movie. I probably saw that before. That's an old movie. I saw that before high school. That. I taught you in high school. I, I know how you were. No. You didn't touch on Nahum. I definitely did not touch on Nahum <laughs> in high school. Uh, and then there's the division, division of roles in Isaiah 33, verse 22. Like it says, God is our king. God is our lawgiver. And God is our judge. Divides it into the three roles of government. And when God is doing those things, it's really great. But the founders knew we don't want one person doing all three of those. And then lastly, due process rights against public accusations. Like you can't just have somebody come up and throw an accusation without due process and justice and all that stuff. What? We used to. <laughs> right? We're, but we're, right? We're at the founding. I, I we're losing this stuff, right? We, we really are losing this stuff pretty steadily. And so like when the founders looked at the Bible... And I'm, I'm hoping some of this stuff is making sense and sticking. But when the founders looked at the Bible and they were like, we want a Republican form of government where we empower a government self-represented and given consent of the governed, listen to, to what our founders wrote about the Bible. So Jonathan, John Dickinson, who signed the Constitution, wrote this. The Bible is the most Republican book that was ever written. It's a pretty strong statement. Or John Adams, also signer of the Constitution, second president of the United States. He says this, the Bible contains the most profound philosophy. Like, we just don't believe that anymore. We treat the Bible like it's a religious book, but we don't allow it to speak into other realms of life with any kind of authority or weight, um, sadly. But back then, you had the political sphere that's like, the Bible contains the most profound philosophy, the most perfect morality and the most refined policy that was ever conceived upon earth. It is the most Republican book in the world. And that's just fascinating, man, to think back that this was the heart of our founding fathers when they were coming up 
with the form of government that the Bible held that much sway and influence on the discussion. Yeah, when you're using the word Republican over and over, we're not yeah, not the political politicizing you. Yeah. Not the political party. The republic is it's just a political system in which the government operates with the consent of the governed. Okay. So it's it's not a direct democracy where everyone gets a vote on every policy. It is we elect rulers to represent us and they rule by our consent. They make the decisions, they vote on the decisions with our consent. And so that's the idea of a republic. After the Bible, so the Bible's the number one most influential voice in in the founding of America and who we were going to become. Right after that's Montesquieu, but because Locke comes first, I want to deal with Locke first. So he writes uh, these two treaties of government back in 1689, and an easy way to remember what, what his main idea was is he took our God-given rights, which he defines, um, he says that it's life, health, liberty, or possessions. And he says like the chief idea of government is to make sure that no one harms another person in life, health, liberty, or possessions. Okay. And so does that make you think of anything in our founding documents? Yes, it does. Which is what? inalienable rights yeah of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness is in the declaration but when you get to the fifth amendment of the constitution it's no person is deprived of life liberty or property Hmm. without due process and so we pull that straight out of Locke. and so the way to remember Locke is like he took the core elements of liberty and locked them away from being stolen like that was the chief the chief idea of government for him was that it existed to protect people's life, health, liberty, and possessions. And so he, like Hobbes, totally agrees that humanity is fallen and gross and wicked, and everybody's going to be on that same page, except Rousseau in a minute is going to throw that upside down. Um, But Locke totally rejected the belief that humanity needed a government with absolute power. He thought that was just a horrendous idea. And so Locke also believed in moral absolutes where Hobbes was kind of shaky on religion and his, his faith Locke not so much. He totally believed in moral absolutes and he believed that the moral order was actually woven in to existence and that all of that was consistent with the laws of God that you find in scripture. And so what he argued was that regardless of your religious beliefs, the universe itself has a moral design to it, hmm. right? So if you're okay, you're a Muslim, you're a Hindu, you're a, you're a Jew or a Christian, you can look at the laws of nature and they're going to be consistent with what is written in the Bible especially, but outside of your religious text, the nature itself is showing you something. And so this is something that Locke wrote. He said, the state of nature, which is anarchy or a fallen world, The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone. Do you get that? And so he's talking about how all mankind is, has to bow to the laws of nature that you see out there. So he put aside the Bible, you bow to the laws of nature. And now Locke would also say that as men, we have God for our King. Like ultimately it is the word of God that's going to guide all this. But he believed that, nature itself had a moral order to it. 
And the and his big contribution was the government is to protect life, liberty, and property. So massively influential. And when he talks about how you have the laws of nature that govern over men and the Declaration of Independence, you find one in the opening sentence, right, that we claim our rights and duties from the laws of nature and nature's God. That's that's straight up lock. You know, it's pulling from that. So you even even if you set God aside, like the laws of nature govern over us, right? And and that is going to be a key pillar to understanding liberty. It can't a king cannot do anything that is contrary to the laws of nature or nature's God. Period. Yeah, you can see how genius these guys were. Oh yeah. Because they are really having this argument throughout the ages of, you know, what do you believe about the state of man and what do you believe about the role of government in relation to that? And you can see how everyone comes at it from a little bit of a different angle. But like you said, it, the founders were really wise and being indiscriminate in what they read, but discriminating in what they took and applied. That's it. That's really well said. Like they were very discriminating in what they took and what they rejected. There will be some stuff that they take from Hobbes and then they spit out the bones, you know? <laughs> you know, they take in the good nutrition and they spit out the bones. So the next guy, just to keep the, the train going, is Baron de Montesquieu, who writes The Spirit of Laws in 1748. And uh, I don't know how it would be to memorize that. Like, I came up with a baron makes your liberties go askew, <laughs> which is, is that real bad? Yeah, the lock one was way better. But, well, what would you do with Baron de Montesquieu? I don't know. I don't know enough about Baron de Montesquieu okay, to well, tell let's, you anything. Let's jump into it, and we'll see if you can come up with a better name so or a better idea. So Montesquieu agrees mankind is wicked. So, so far on this, it's like, yeah, humanity, you got the fan club going. You know, they all recognize that we're wicked and we would abuse power. But here's what Montesquieu is after. And I, this is so good. He says he, he wanted to form a government where men would not be compelled to fear one another. Either through anarchy, which is like what Hobbes is talking about, where you just live in constant fear and life is poor, pitiful, brutish, and short and all that. But you also should not fear your government via oppression. And so, like, that's one of the things that today is really kind of frightening is we totally fear things. Like, we fear who's going to win the president. Why? We should not. If, if, if we were doing a good job of making sure that the Leviathan was strapped down mm -hmm. like Locke talked about, like he's not going to be a threat to us because he is strapped down. Okay, we have a government, but he's not scary enough to where he could hurt us because we've limited his scope and his reach to where we shouldn't be afraid of our own government. That's not true anymore. Like everybody fears who's going to be elected president. Everybody on, on the right side of the political spectrum is terrified that Biden will be reelected. Everybody on the left side of the political spectrum is totally terrified that Trump would be reelected. And you have a, a populace that's terrified of who's going to be in charge of the government. And our founders wanted to found it in a way that says you shouldn't be afraid of who's in the government. The government should be so restrained and limited in its power that you really shouldn't be afraid of it. Right? Do you? Yeah. Are we there? Like, we've lost that, right? You agree? And both of those things. Like, we do have a deep fear for each other. Because if I say something that you don't agree with and you want to burn my world down, yeah, a lot of times you could. If I say the right thing in your mind or the wrong thing, there is a deep-seated fear of, I mean, a tweet could yeah. destroy your whole life. That's true. Um, 
And Montesquieu said, when he when he's looking at this and he says, how can we construct, how can we restrain the Leviathan in a way that doesn't make people afraid of one another? He has this brilliant idea that the three branches of government, which are identified as executive, legislative, and judicial, he defined their roles. He argued for the separation of powers and checks and balances. And listen to what he said. He said, there would be an end of everything were the same man or the same body to exercise those three powers. Like, man should not have those three powers consolidated in one person or committee or party. And in Isaiah 33, 22, which is where these come from, I mean, they're kind of natural, but... Isaiah identifies them and says, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. But Montesquieu knew that if one man was to be our judge, lawgiver, and king, he would not save us. <laughs> you know, he, would, he would be a terrifying tyrant, and he would exploit everyone else. And so he talked about this, and he wrote this. This guy's so brilliant. That's why he's the most cited philosopher. He says this. To have this liberty, it is requisite, it's required, the government be so constituted as one man need not be afraid of one another. And he goes on and he talks about how the government should have a check to power and that no man should be compelled to do things which the law does not oblige him nor forced to abstain from things which the law permits. And so what he's saying there is if you have a legislative body, the legislative body is the lawgiver's. No one should be compelled to do anything that the governing body that they've elected hasn't made a law for. And so we now live in a state where we've got all these bureaucracies and all these agencies that make all these rules more so than the Congress that we've elected or consented to be governed by. And Montesquieu is saying, if you ever got to the point where you're obliged to do things that your law-giving body doesn't require of you, you're in tyranny. You just don't know it yet. Like, and we have forfeited our right to be ruled by the lawgivers we've elected. This bureaucratic structure can impose requirements, legally binding requirements that impose jail time when there was no consent of the governed given to these agencies or unelected bureaucrats. What do you think of that? I think it's amazing that Montesquieu came up with all this and I didn't even know. He's pretty brilliant, dude. He is really, really smart. And so Montesquieu is a proponent of republics. He believes that that's the, the best way to go. But he, he has this condition. He says republics can't exist for long unless the people are virtuous. Why, why is that? Can you make sense of that? Yeah, because if it's fallen people entering into all these separation of powers, then there's going to be a desire for more power always. Then maybe you can't do it outright, like the president can't control Congress or whatever on the surface, but there's definitely ways to move in that direction, So, yeah. which is a fatal flaw that the founders saw originally. That's right. So when the Constitutional Convention was over and everybody was coming out, one of the questions, you know, the, everybody's gathered outside the Constitutional that what kind of government did you give us? And Franklin famously said, a republic, if you can keep it. And so the idea was you had to be virtuous enough to, like, to elect leaders that were going to resist power, to resist the urge to grab more power and, and to, to push further into that tyrannical urge to control all things. But beyond that, 
if you have a populace, because liberty requires you to be trusted, right? Like the more my kids behave, the less rules we have in the house yeah. just by nature. Like I don't have to constantly correct you and say, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this because you're trusted. If you're virtuous, you don't require a bunch of laws and, and rules and the strong arm of government at home from dad and mom to control you. Like if you want more freedom, the way to get it, kids, if you're listening, <laughs> is to behave. They're and then not. your parents, yeah, I know they're, they're not, <laughs> they're listening. definitely not listening, but, but is to listen to your parents. And what, what Montesquieu is saying is like, if you ever have a populace, not just the government, if the government abandons virtue, it's game over. Mm. But if the populace abandons virtue, if you can't be governed by a force that comes from inside, then you have to be governed by a force that comes from outside. And so that's where tyrannies emerge. And that's where governments grow to exert control over people that no longer recognize the importance of virtue and lawfulness. Yeah, that goes all the way back to Plato and like the city's the soul writ large. That's like right. When we look at our world and we're like, oh boy. It seems crazy. Like, yeah, a bunch of crazy people are rotting it. Yeah. There's a bunch of crazy souls, a bunch of rotten, selfish souls. And when you write that large, you know, it's like the old saying that in a, in a, in a Republican democracy or a Democratic Republic, you get the government you deserve. Yeah. So if you think about your your elected leaders are a reflection of the soul of your people, yikes, man. Yeah. Yikes. And so we like it's it's not just about political philosophy. Like all there's so much about this that intertwines. Like you have to have virtue. You can't just come up with a good system that has, you know, smart ethics behind it. Like you have to have a virtuous people. And so then finally, Blackstone. He, who wrote the commentaries on the laws of England. And I mean, this guy is living, you know, he's writing all this stuff like 20 years before the constitutional convention. So he's like super contemporary. Um, and, and he is, this guy's a pretty strong believer, right? Some of the comments that he makes, like if, if <laughs> our founders loved this guy, but if you were to have a politician say what he said today, they're out. it would be rough, right? So let me just read some of Blackstone's <laughs> commentary. He says, the law of nature is supreme, unvariable, and uncontrollable rule of conduct to all men. So the law of nature reigns supreme. We're good. We got that. Okay, we've heard that before. But then he says, the law of nature being co-eval with mankind and dictated by God himself is, of course, superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe and all countries at all times. And so what he says is, let me summarize, Whatever laws of man come comes up with, the law of God reigns supreme. It's binding over all the globe. It, it overrules anything that's not in accordance with it. And this is one of the top three guys our founders looking toward. And he says, this natural liberty being a right inherent in us at birth. So this is also a, a crazy new philosophy in the world, right? Natural liberty being a right inherent in us at birth. Like no part of the world had ever thought you, when you're born, you're born with a right to be free. Mm. So this is going to start running up against slavery. Some yeah. of these philosophies put the guilt into America that, you know, tweaked our conscience to where we were willing to fight a war to get rid of this brutal institution that prior to Britain outlawing it in the U S and Haiti and the French, 
had always existed in every country throughout all time for all of history, something happened in the conscience of the Western civilization that began to fight to put this institution to bed and to death once and for all. And it comes from this. Like there's a natural liberty that all people are entitled to. And so this launched the abolitionist movement, and which you didn't see much of prior to these guys. This guy is, you know, his, his arguments, his language is, you'll see it show up in, in kind of echoes of the preamble and the articles and the Bill of Rights. Uh, and even some of the amendments later, like the 13th and 14th Amendment, you see Blackstone's fingerprints on. If we're going to make the case that there was a revolution that, that undermined all of America's founding principles without a shot ever being fired in the mm-hmm. It's really important for us to understand, like, let's, let's boil down w- how we were founded down to its, its core elements, okay? And I, I came up with an acronym. It's, it'll be cheesy, but I figure since we're constantly talking about trains on we're the tracks. We're big train people. <laughs> that came up and, like, it won't go away. So, but the acronym works now. So it's, it's RAIL, R-A-I-L. And so the first one is religious foundation, right? Like all laws, all responsibilities over all the globe, they come from God himself. And in fact, your rights come from God, and therefore they can't be taken away by a government. And you see that in the declaration where it says, we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like the declaration says our rights come from God. The constitution says that, Government was only instituted to secure the blessings of liberty. Notice that. To secure the blessings, not to grant them. The government does not grant you liberties. They only exist to secure them from being snatched away by other rotten, fallen people. And lastly, like you just recognize that if the government can grant you liberty, then the government can take them away. Mm. And so the first one, all of our, all of our foundations ha- came from a religious perspective. Everything comes from God. Number two, A, absolutes. If American liberty is to survive, the governance must be guided by absolute morals. And this was the conversation that was always there, that if you're going to have a Republican form of government, what do you have to have to keep it? Virtue. To have virtue, there has to be absolutes. There has to be some agreed-upon understanding of what is good and evil. And if you ever have an issue where you can't have unity on what's right and wrong, for instance, you mentioned it, slavery, what will it do to the republic? It'll rip it apart. Like You can't have disagreement over the basic foundations of what's right and wrong, or it will destroy a Republic. It'll rip it apart. It'll rip it apart at the soul. And Washington understood. He said of all the dispositions and habits, which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are the indispensable supports. So you get Washington and he says, okay, line up everything that will make our country succeed or fail and list them by priority. And what does he say? Religion and morality are the indispensable supports. Everything else could go, you know, like versus those two. They have to be here. And Adam said the same thing. He said our constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. 
That's terrifying. <laughs> right? Like we're it's like we're so long gone. But there's this this echo where we we kind of convince ourselves, "Oh no, we're doing well. We're we still have everything. Everything's fine." It's really not. Like we've lost who we were. We have no idea who we are. Yeah. Or where we're going. You know, we ju- we're just sliding away from each of these founding principles because if I were to ask you how are we doing on the religious foundation in America, Will? Not so hot. How are we doing on the absolutes, Will? Not so good. All right, well, this next one, individual rights. This is the I. Individual rights. The individual must be protected from the collective or the mob. This was like this was big in Locke where he's talking about locking up those things like no man's life, liberty, or property can be taken or assaulted by other people or by the government without due process. Like you have to have that. And so you see that in the Fifth Amendment. You have a guaranteed right to life, liberty, and property. The individual being made in God's image is extraordinarily valuable. The entire And here's, I get so frustrated when I see public figures talk about what the Bill of Rights guarantees to the, the citizens. Like we give you the right to, to speak freely or something like that. No. No, 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 no. The Bill of Rights do not come and give individuals their rights. The Bill of Rights is entirely a restriction on what the collective, the government, the mob, in some sense, is allowed to impose on the individual. So if I were to ask you, what are the first words of the First Amendment? You would say, Congress shall make no law. And then it goes in, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. What's the Second Amendment? Congress can't come and infringe upon your right to bear arms. Third one, they can't come and force soldiers to live in your houses. Like every single one of the amendments in the Bill of Rights is not telling you what you're allowed to do. It's telling the government what they absolutely may not do. Why? Because according to our founders, the rights of the individual far out-prioritized the collective. Why is that important? And how do you see that threatened today? Can you come up, like, what, where do you see that threatened? I mean, that's not too hard to find. What would you say? I think it's scary because the mob is everybody now. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. back in that day, if I said something crazy, only the people who heard it or maybe some people got letters about it. <laughs> but now everyone knows everything in a globalized world. Yeah, I mean, you this the stuff that came out when they started looking at, at the behind-the-scenes files of the government. Are we doing Twitter files? Yeah, Heck where yeah. the government is going to Twitter saying, silence this person, take deplatform yeah. them. And you're seeing that more and more. And it's like people kind of go, yeah, but it's not me. Yeah. When I was growing up, there, there was an expression that used to say, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I will lay down my life to defend your right to say it. You know, that was kind of the, you never hear that anymore. No. It's gone. Yeah, it's totally gone. And so this idea of individual rights is just dissipating. And that's that's a terrifying thing. You know, the government can come in and, and basically, but it's misinformation. Or, or they agree with the government. So like, who cares about that guy? I didn't like that guy anyways. Like, exactly. we should silence those people. Exactly. And so this has to have impetus from both sides of the political aisle. Because here's the reality. when When the power spectrum shifts... And it will. And it will and inevitably does. My fear is that you've got people who ragingly hate each other so viscerally on both sides mm-hmm. that they will consent 
to the other side being trampled. Yeah. And when the power shifts back, it's going to be like, oh, you know, who cares? Put them in jail, ship them out, like do whatever to them. I don't care. Look at what they did to us. And it just becomes this never-ending, increasingly volatile and violent power grab. And that is exactly what the founders feared. When virtue goes, all of it collapses. Mm. Religious R, absolutes A, individual rights I, and the last one is limited government. And so the idea here is that old maxim that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the founders, when they were putting together the Constitution, put in all these ways to strap down the Leviathan. So, you know, there's checks and balances. You know, there's certain things that the president does. But even in, like, naming a Supreme Court justice, which is about the judiciary, he has to have the consent of the Senate. Like, everything one branch does has some kind of a check to the other branches. And it's to keep one of them from being able to run away with power. Brilliant. And it all comes from the distrust of the nature of man, uh, the separation of power. So it is Congress's job to set the law, not the executive bureaucracy. That one's gone. Like, but in the founding, that one was supposed to be there. And it's the executive's job to lead wars and to, to be the, the chief law enforcement. And you can't have the other branches that step on those roles and the judiciary is the one who's objectively called to look into the constitutionality of things. You can't have one branch that starts saying, you know what, I'm going to take your role away. There's a separation of powers. They, you know, term limits started coming in, routine elections. Why do we have those? It's because, you know what, if two years, I only trust that representative for two years worth of time before he gets held accountable. Why? Because we don't trust him. Yeah. Like elections, the, the the reason elections exist is because we don't trust our leaders, right? Yeah, we want to be able to say no. And we want to be able to say no. And so, like, you have to have that. It's like, it's like a release valve of the tension of the electorate. And by the way, you only rule by the consent of the governed. And if we don't like the job you're doing, we should be able to throw you out. And so you have to have faith and the ability to have fair elections. And then you have decentralization, like this, this is also, you know, a fairly new thing where most other governments, they put their chief power on top, but the constitution comes along and says, look, if the constitution doesn't mention something, it belongs to the states. Mm. Like we, we don't want top down, you know, the government involved in every avenue. And so like in issues like marriage, that's a state issue and issues like education, that's actually a local issue. The more things that are decentralized, the less you have to worry about the emergence of a tyranny, right? But you give frameworks in the Constitution so that these lower levels of government can't oppress the people. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant system. But the reality is, you know, if we're using this acronym as rail, our country's derailed, yeah. right? I don't know how many people understand the brilliance and the beauty of the government we've received. In fact, most people only look at how we failed to meet the ideals with things like slavery. And, and so that is used as an argument to say we have to get rid of the whole thing, right? When the reality is the genius of the Constitution and the political philosophies that were underpinning it 
if they had been faithfully followed, none of those things would have happened. If the ethic of the Declaration and the Constitution had actually been followed, there would have been none of these great problems. I don't think any of those guys would look at this and be like, oh, wow, that got out of hand. Like they were prepared for that because this whole absence of virtue in their mind, they knew the major problem from the very outset is the depravity of man. And if that's not checked at all, then there's no way for people to control people without that. The founders were all very adamant that we had to be a nation that promoted religion. It wasn't going to be like today we talk about, oh, separation of church and state. Well, what that means is the state can't compel you to come join a church. It can't compel your conscience. But they absolutely believed in the public promotion of religion and the ethics that come from Christianity. So just to show that, I'm going to take you on a quick tour through quite a number of founders, but I want you to hear the common words that you hear again and again and again, because you'll hear, you'll notice This was obviously a rallying cry that they all knew and talked about relentlessly because they keep saying almost the same thing. Ready? So in his farewell address in 1796, as the other side of the world is on fire with the French Revolution that we'll talk about in our next episode, Washington says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, hear these words, religion and morality are indispensable supports. John Adams says, it is religion and morality alone, hear those words, which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. Patrick Henry, you know, the famous give me liberty or give me death guy. He says, the great pillars of all government and all social life are virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. Charles Carroll, signer of the Declaration, says this, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, that are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. Sam Adams, father of the American Revolution, hear what he says. Religion and good morals. Are you picking up on a pattern yet? Religion and good morals are the only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness. Let statesmen and patriots unite their endeavors to renovate the age by educating their little boys and girls, leading them in the study and practice of the exalted virtues of the Christian system. Abraham Baldwin, signer of the Constitution, a free government can only be happy when the public principle and opinions are properly directed. Well, what is that? He says, by religion and education, it should therefore be among the first objects of those who wish well to the national prosperity to encourage and support the principles of religion and morality. There it is. William Patterson, signer of the Constitution, religion and morality. Gee, that sounds familiar. Religion and morality are necessary to good government, good order, and good laws. For when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. He's quoting the Proverbs there. Governor Morris, signer of the Constitution, who, by the way, was the most vocal member of the Constitutional Convention. He's the guy who wrote the preamble. He says this, For avoiding the extremes of despotism or anarchy, because those are the two we want to avoid, the only ground of hope must be on the morals of the people. 
I believe that religion is the only solid base of morals and that morals are the only possible support of a free government. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion and the duties of man toward God. Noah Webster, father of American education. The moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all of our civil institutions and laws. Joseph Story, Supreme Court, appointed by Madison, Supreme Court justice appointed by the guy who was the primary architect of the Constitution. I believe Christianity necessary to the support of civil society. John Hancock, big signature on the Declaration. The very existence of republics depend much on the public institutions of religion. James McHenry, signer of the U.S. Constitution. Are you getting tired of this yet? (laughs) Public utility pleads most forcibly for the general distribution of the Holy Scriptures. The doctrine they preach, the obligations they impose, the punishments they threaten, the rewards they promise, the, the stamp and image of divinity they bear, which produces a conviction of their truths, can alone secure to society order and peace and to our courts of justice and constitutions of government, purity, stability, and usefulness. Thomas Jefferson, God who gave us life also gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. James Wilson, signer of the Constitution, first one of the first U.S. Supreme Court justices. Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters, friends, mutual assistants. Indeed, these two sciences run into each other. John Jay, the first U.S. Supreme Court chief justice, it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for our rulers. And one of the delegates to the Continental Congress, who was the first major historian of the American Revolution, said this, Remember that there can be no political happiness without liberty, that there can be no liberty without morality, and that there can be no morality without religion. So I'm going to stop there. I mean, I really could. There's, you could go on and on and on. But that's a pretty broad brush of our founders. And what was their common message, Will? Religion and morality. Religion and morality. Like, they have to be here. They are the cornerstone of all the political philosophy that is baked into this Constitution. And in all the ways that they failed, that our country has failed to measure up to the ideals of our founding principles, guess what it was that ultimately abolished those evils? Religion and morality. And we have to get back to the days where we understand the principles of liberty, where as Christians, we can explain, we can expound upon, and we can hold the torch of liberty because that is what's going to be best for the gospel. That is going to be what's best for our children. And when we talk about justice and mercy issues, we have an obligation to protect this place from the extremes of despotism or anarchy. Amen? Amen. All right, so in our next one, if, if you make it to the next one, we're going to be getting into, okay, these, these are the founding principles that I, I love. I love these philosophers. I appreciate America's foundation. But now let's look at the other side of the coin 
and let's look at the the philosophic principles that lead into the French Revolution. Which, by the way, did you know the the American Constitution was ratified in 1789? The French Revolution was sparked in 1789. So it's like this perfect little experiment in history where you have the American Revolution being set over and against the French Revolution. The American Revolution, all about God, religion, morality. The French Revolution, as we're going to see, is all about getting rid of God, claiming that morality is a an imposition that crushes man's liberty and freedom. And and they say, you know, man is man doesn't need God anymore. We're now smart enough to chart our own course. Let's look at how these two revolutions compare. And as Thucydides says, history is philosophy teaching by examples. So when you study history, you see which philosophic principles work and which don't. So stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll be picking on the French. (laughs) Have a good week, everyone. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and that you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero and Under the Sun by Keys of Moon. Reporting from the scene, pure epicness, nature, and the inspiration by Maxco Music. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Church by visiting our website, riovistachurch.com.